Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. In-depth, personal conversations with the most legendary figures in the history of contemporary music. Come with us as we explore the stories behind the albums and songs that have become the soundtrack of our lives. Here's your host, Pete Ganbark. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. Our guest this week is one of the most recent inductees into both the Songwriters and Rock and Roll Halls of Fame, Dave Stewart. Most recognized as one half of the iconic group Eurythmics, Dave and Annie Lennox racked up a string of hits across the globe, eventually selling over 75 million records worldwide. After Eurythmics broke up in 1990, Dave went on to collaborate with a who's who list of the most legendary artists of all time, Mick Jagger, Paul McCartney, U2, and Stevie Nicks, just to scratch the surface. Dave has also created multiple successful television shows, directed original films, written musicals for Broadway, and written several books. As an in-demand songwriter and record producer, Dave has written or produced hits for a diverse list of amazing artists including Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, Shakespeare's Sister, Candy Dulfer, No Doubt, and Ringo Starr. Dave has been nominated for an astounding seven Grammy Awards and has seen his Eurythmic song Sweet Dreams Are Made of This inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 2020. He's also been nominated for 12 Brit Awards, winning four, three of which named Stewart as Producer of the Year in 1986, 1987, and 1990. everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. I am thrilled to be welcoming our guest today from an island somewhere close to Eleuthera. Um, <laughs> but hopefully if the technology holds up, you will never know that we are thousands and thousands of miles apart. So welcome, Dave Stewart. Thrilled to have you. Thank you so much. It's good to be here. A good place to start, Dave, would be to congratulate you on some major events all happening in your life this year. Last mm -hmm. month, you and Annie were inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Yep. I was actually in the audience that night. I saw you guys perform at the induction, and it was magical. And to me, it's amazing that a partnership that started over 40 years ago is still mm -hmm. so creatively seamless. It's not like you guys are together a lot. It's not like you're constantly touring. But when you're back together, it's almost like the magic never left. Yeah, sparks fly. Yes, I was talking about this the other day. It's You see, Annie and I met, Annie was 21, and it was probably 45 years ago, and immediately the same day we met, decided to be together, and we had this sort of like connection, and it was not just a music connection, it was like a connection of minds, and the idea of being, you know, 21, I was 24, and really looking for somebody to who could you could sort of relate to, coming from where we came from, you know, I'm from the northeast of England and she's from the north of Scotland, and we were both in London, which was a huge place, and you could get swallowed up and lost and spit out, you know. And so 
it was an amazing just that moment where you realize ah this person knows exactly what i'm feeling and talking about and she had the same reaction the chemistry is still there you know yeah fast forward so many years later it's still there yeah well what's strange is um we didn't write any songs together or separately during the sort of three or three i can't remember four years we lived together not one right we played in another band and the boy who wrote the songs who was called pete and um then when we decided to live separately which is quite funny because annie only moved upstairs <laughs> so it was you know the knock on the door for have you got any sugar kind of thing but then we formed eurythmics and we never stopped writing for about sort of 10 years in a row mm. i mean you know ridiculous i think eight or nine albums came out and every song we seemed to pen in about half an hour each one and it just came pouring out right so then when we proceeded to play live as a duo as opposed to when we were playing in a band behind another singer this thing happened on stage which you witnessed just this year where we're not really like um a straightforward duo playing songs that we've written we have a very strong emotional connection obviously because we live together and then everything we've been through and he always says yes yeah, one plus one equals three right something else happens and the audience realizes that hang on these people aren't just singing their song there's something else going yeah, on. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And that happens in an arena or a stadium or on a tiny stage, yep. you know, with an acoustic guitar. It's the same explosive thing happens. Right. Well, it's a testament to the chemistry that the two of you have later this year. In addition to having just been inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, you and Annie will be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So on, on top yeah. of that, this September, you'll be celebrating your 70th birthday. So it's a big year for Dave Stewart. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. And I'm busier than ever. I'm it's... in my studio here producing a, a young girl, 19 years old, who's from the same hometown as me, Sunderland. Wow. Faye Fantaro, amazing little singer-songwriter. And I don't ever feel tired or worn out of like that excitement of making a record or writing songs or producing. And I don't. I think most musicians feel the same. It's it's this um, unattainable quest you're on to sort of either with the person you're writing with or producing to sort of get that sort of thing in a bottle if you know what i mean right. <laughs> like the lightning in a bottle sure. but also sure even though you've been to the mountaintop so to speak many yeah. times that quest and hunger is still there yes because uh, there's infinite possibilities in music as you know because um for a start there's so many genres going back in time you know in Indian music and sure. African music. Sure. And I tend to absorb a lot of that and, you know, as input into whatever music I'm making. So my reference points can go back a thousand years 
or as I said tonight in 66, yep. you know, when I'm 14 sure. years old. Sure. And my mind's being blown by the Beatles and the Stones and the Kinks and the Who. But I'm also listening to African rhythms, yep. King Sunny A Day, yep. and all sorts of music that influences me and going right to Rogers and Hammerstein and sure. string arrangements sure. and the string arrangement on um, Ain't Nothing Like the Real Thing with sure. Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell. Yep. Now, I get so sort of like well absorbed in that stuff that I needed to ring up the guy who did that string arrangement. Who, who was you know that? what I mean? Who was that? Yeah, it was an older guy. Well, this was years ago. I managed to get inside the Motown archives and be shown. Wow. I had tapes in my hand of like stuff that I'd sort of was idolized these singers and songs for years. So I, I had to look on the tape box and like, like, but who did this? Wow. Incredible. And when you broke it down, that arrangement, you know, there's harps and there's all sorts of little things going on that when you listen to the song, you don't realize if you take them off, it, it, it's like a completely different song. Sure. So that's why studying, uh, you know, all sorts of uh, composers in the mix as well helped me be able to not just think of straightforward, you know, out-of-the-box music production. Yeah, well, you've had such great inspirations as a listener and as a fan that all of that creates this very broad palette from which to paint from. So when you mm. listen to the music that you've been a part of creating – you know, it's not just one style of music. You know, obviously there's the sitar in, in Don't Come Around Here No More, which we'll talk about, but and the mm. African music that you made with the Nelson Mandela Project, which we'll talk about. But mm. you never know what you're going to hear when Dave Stewart is part of creating something new. Yeah, uh, I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, even now, I'm still excited about it. And I know a lot of bands that um, have stuck to their their genre and their world, and they love doing that, and they're going to play this kind of uh, rock and roll or this kind of uh, metal music or whatever it is. And they could have just as much enjoyment just bending that a little bit but staying in that world. For, for some reason... Um, <clears throat> I went down the, uh, I went through the looking glass or something <laughs> and and discovered all this other stuff. Now, if you were to think about an architect, a brilliant architect, and they get commissioned to make all sorts of kinds of buildings that have to fit into all sorts of spaces, you know, and I love that too, looking at these tiny houses in Tokyo and like, how on earth did he manage to do that? And then you get a look inside and you go, oh, I see. He's he's managed to arrange the thing so it's livable and beautiful at the same time. So music, I've got my little miniature 12-string here. You know that if you play like a D major, like... And you go, oh, that's very sort of up and sort of almost sounds like a here comes the sun kind of up and then you, you just lift one finger off and you play a major seventh and you go oh hang on a minute now we've gone into a kind of 
slightly dreamy, jazzy world, but then you move your finger back one more, and you play a D seventh, and you're like, hmm, I see. So let's try them all together. And then you start, it's like an architect, you see, you're starting to put the things together. But if you were thinking, I think I'll write something that's a, a soulful gospel feeling, because I've heard them singing at the church up the road, and you're thinking, what are those chords that guy's playing on that Hammond organ <laughs> that they're singing to? Now, most of the time, you hear the voices. But there's a song I always listen to called uh, Like a Ship Without a Sail, you know, that was recorded in a Chicago church in the 70s. And you hear the, the you know, the chords, and that starts to fascinate me. So I, I will go and experiment, you know, in, for instance, in um, Memphis, in, you know, the studio Al Green recorded in. Sure. So I just want ex exactly the same players, right? And the drum kit's nailed down with the same mics, and Boo Mitchell, the son of Willie Mitchell, is there on the board, and you're going, okay, so wow. this is how they created that sound. Now I'll get, I'll get them to play these chords, but I'll play, play a D, and then a diminished B minor sevens. Then you go ah. When you hear the bass player and the drummer immediately pick up on those chords and put it into a soul groove, you're off to the races. You know, so I never lock genius out of the room, and that's mm -hmm. something that Jimmy Iovine used to say. But um, my thing is, like, look, I have this sort of idea, concept, vision, whatever you call it, the execution of it, I'm not going to try and do it all myself. I, and like architects do, you know, hang on. Now, now bass player, there's so many different kinds of incredible bass players. But if you want to really hear a bass player play in this soulful way that could be, you know, from the 60s, and if you want that drum sound and all that stuff, well, there's a few places that have it. Now, obviously, Silk Sonic... You know, when they leave the door open, if you listen to the drum sound and what's being played on that record, they were probably thinking the same thing, like, hmm, how do we get that <laughs> feeling that inspired us so much? That's why yeah. it's important, yeah. I think, that what you're doing is, like, taking, you know, people back through musical history and, like, you know, you jump to the 80s and you go, okay, well, that synthesizer doesn't sound like this soft synth plug-in. Right. It sounds a lot more punchy. Right. And I'll go, yes, that's because it's an ARP odyssey <laughs> that was like you had to play it, but you could move the little parameters with your fingers to get it to that really punchy sound that is really hard still to uh, right. simulate right. through soft synth. So when you put Sweet Dreams on, and there's this massive boom starts it, which is weird because dance music usually it's on the two, you know, the right. snare drum is the beat, so boom, cat, boom, cat, you know, like Michael Jackson beat it or whatever. Well, Sweet Dreams, it comes on the one, it's like boom, do, 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 right? Do, right?
on making that, people, when we play, even at the Songwriters Hall of Fame, you know, when uh, St. Vincent was... Yeah, she was great, us, by the way. She was terrific. She was great. And I, I knew the synth guys, usually, if the keyboard player's there and there's only one keyboard player, they're very puzzled about how that riff goes. Because <laughs> it's actually and two keyboard parts that are playing completely different two things, right? Keyboard parts in St. Vincent, there was two keyboard players, and they'd sussed it, and one was going to doing... and the other one's doing... Right? But the actual sound of those two, you know, synthesizers together, without going through filters or anything like that, you know the Roland SH-01 and the Kurzweil, two completely different sounds. Right. But that and just the drum, so you're using now three tracks as the whole, you know, the backing track right. explodes even today at EDM festivals right. or wherever. Of course. I think what a lot of people don't realize, though, is that behind all of that, you know, these songs were all usually started acoustic, before yes. any production to make sure it really works as a song. You know, exactly. Which is why when I saw you and Annie perform acoustic, you know, it was as powerful as the first mm -hmm. time that I heard Sweet Dreams with, you know, the hit on the one like you're talking yeah. about. Well, I think that is, um, you're absolutely right. And we would make sure that, hang on, this works um, acoustically. And we we actually did quite a few shows or mini tours just being on acoustic guitar and Annie singing. And the, mo the most wild one was that um, we went to play in Rome. I was good friends of Lou Reed, and he was on the side of the stage with my wife. And there was 400,000 people. And before we played, it was because the Pope had been and done a speech and I, I don't know the reason why it was on the outskirts of Rome and we had one acoustic guitar, Annie singing. We started playing and the whole crowd was singing along with it. Wow. And it's moments like that you realize, okay, so <laughs> songs. So the, the, Pope, song. the Pope was a good opening act then. He warmed the crowd. He was a great opening act. We just couldn't get him back again. <laughs> <laughs> We've got here, that was a good idea. But um, no, the songs themselves, yeah, we made sure the the bones, you know, the structure, the skeletal version. is going to hold up, sure, as a copyright, sure, which is one of the reasons that, you know, you are now proud members of the Songwriters Hall of Fame because, you know, it's as much about the song itself as it is the production and the performance. I'd love to go back to the beginning, Dave. You mentioned that you're from North England, you're from Sunderland. Yeah. And Sunderland, for those who don't know, was a big shipbuilding town. And I, I love the story that I heard about how your parents met. Can you fill our listeners in on that? Oh, yeah. See, my dad, obviously, was the perfect age to be sent off in the war and um world war Two. you know 18 years old you get called up but he just started to have a little job at this office and he was you know riding a bicycle like a runner you call them these days right and um my mum at the head of the office the guy who was uh, owned the company 
all these boys were sent off to war and he asked all the secretaries to write letters to them. Now, they didn't know each other, but she wrote these letters. When he came back from war, she had a twin sister, identical twin sister, and they both married the person they were sending the letters to. They're pen pals. Pen pals, yeah. Wow. Now, that happened a lot, but my neighbor two down, Len Gibson, he was in the Japanese prisoner of war camp for four years and had to try and build the Burmese railway, and most people died, and there was terrible conditions and torture, and he came back about six stone five or something and married the nurse who was wow. the first person in the hospital. Wow. And he taught me my first little things about the guitar because he'd made a guitar out of bits of floorboard and wire in the Japanese prison of war camp and tried to sort of cheer his friends up quietly playing on the nighttime little songs on this thing. But he was teaching me, but I didn't realize he had tuned it to a chord, you know, just to play it. So when I first heard some blues music and, you know, See, blues music, when you hear a lot of rock and roll bands play it, they're often playing a sequence like... or whatever. But I had a film called Deep Blues, and I realised the feeling comes from some African feeling, right? And the rhythms, like R.L. Burnside, will do something like... You see, and it would stay on one chord, and then he'd sing something when it stopped, and then come back with. And it was interesting for me getting into music via my next-door neighbor but one and hearing, you know, Robert Johnson, King of the Delta Blues singers, and this weird fusion and the radio in Britain. Right. I realized, hang on a minute, the Rolling Stones and the Kinks and various bands I was listening to had been listening to some blues music too. And they'd, and then Ringo told me later, yeah, well, when the, you know, in the ships coming into Liverpool, they would go to meet sailors to see if they brought anything, any records from America. And that's where they would sort of hear, you know, all of these sort of wow. great early sort of... Uh, you know, blues and R&B and songs. And, you, you know, because you hear the Stones' early records and sure. the Beatles' early records, and they're playing covers a lot of the time yep. of these classics. Yeah, so, I mean, isn't it, isn't it the same thing as your cousin moving to Memphis and sending you records? Exactly. That's how I even heard a, a blues record. I didn't even know what it was, you know. Right. I put this record on the record player. Well, what came out of it affected me so much. I got goosebumps everywhere and chills, but I couldn't even work out it was music. And it was Robert Johnson right. singing, probably recorded in a hotel room or something, with his acoustic guitar and this very sort of whining voice. But it, it was everything. There was something coming out of the record that wasn't like music in inverted commas. It was 
a feeling and yeah. that going back to me and Annie and the feeling yeah. and what you witnessed at the yeah. sunrise whole thing yeah. that's what is trying to capture a feeling is a lot more tricky than putting you know loads of chords together and some words sure. which you know it's an easy thing to do right but what's the feeling of it and that goes back to what's the intent so the intention behind making uh, records or writing songs or making any music seems to have wandered off on a tangent a bit in today, you mm -hmm. see, because the intention has been um, kind of polluted by, in a way, social media and people oh, needing to get loads of likes and right. oh, let's try and do this and that. But you see, the intention with Annie and I and I'm sure lots of bands you know, was not that. It was like, how do we make something that gives us goosebumps and makes us right. feel something? Right. You know? No, a hundred percent. And, you know, there, there's so much in your life that our listeners may not know about. But as a kid, you were a soccer player, a football player, and mm -hmm. then you got hurt and you were in a hospital and your brother brought you an old guitar and that's how you ultimately became obsessed with playing the guitar and you played it so much that your fingers bled, right? Exactly. Well, I did what they call 10,000 hours, you know, but it wasn't like, oh, I have to do 10,000 hours. I just didn't want to put it down. In fact, so much so that my dad got really worried and took me to the doctor because he thought by pressing this big guitar on my chest when I was still <laughs> growing was making one side of my chest look a bit sort of like indented. And the doctor was like, well, what have you been doing? <laughs> I said, I've been playing the guitar. And he was a really sweet guy. He just said to my dad, I oh, know. Listen, it's great that he loves something. So, because in <laughs> Sunderland there was no, there was no jobs. You know, it was like um, they closed the coal mine, they closed the shipyard. You know what you're going to do? You're right. up in, you know, this place right north of England. I suppose like being in, you know, one of these towns in Virginia or right. wherever, and you just don't know what you're doing. You're looking out the window. There's grey slate skies, horizontal rain most of the days, you know, windy, mm -hmm. north sea. Right, not very, very inspiring. Cold. Yeah. It's not, and it is in a way, now I realize, coming from that, and Annie coming from Aberdeen had the similar thing, uh, but it's more inspiring in retrospect. <laughs> not, not when you're there battling against uh, uh, the right. wind and the rain. Well, a lot of people may not know that Sunderland is actually 400 miles north of London. It's actually closer to Scotland. Yeah. So when, how did you get out of Sunderland? You formed a band, you made a demo, and eventually that demo gets to Elton John's Rocket Company. Is that right? Yeah, what happened was there was a couple of other boys from Sunderland, and I, my, so there was a relief teacher at my school, and he played the guitar, and he played kind of folk music and I was oh you know can you teach me some things and he did and we started to play together and then we met these two other boys who played and the four of us made this kind of Crosby Stills Nash and Young acoustic kind of band and that tape got in the hands of Lionel Conway who was running Island Music for Chris Blackwell and he loved it wanted to sign us, and then he sent it to Elton John. 
and he just formed Rocket Records, and he signed us. But we were only eighteen and nineteen years old, right? And, and never been out of Sunderland, really. So, so that must have been that must have been a real education to come, because the band, which later was was named Long Dancer. You know, you mm. guys opened up for Elton John on tour. Uh, yeah. you, you made an album, which you kind of learned as as you went by doing a lot of things wrong in the beginning. But mm. the whole thing must have been an education for you. Well, yeah, it was a bit like Too Much Too Soon, which is one of the songs on the album. You know, going from Sunderland and zero understanding of music world, music industry... Elton was amazing, the most generous person. But you see, we really hadn't been taught anything about what we were meant to be doing. As you say, suddenly we're on stage playing to 10,000 people in a cycle stadium before Elton in Italy and going in big studios. And, you know, I think it just uh, it sort of blew our minds. I was probably... I was fascinated by it all, but I wasn't really there. Right. Because you're just too, it was too much to take in. So then when that band broke up, I just thought, well, that was it. That must have been the music experience. Right. And now, You'd move on now to something I'll, else. What, right. Now all I do. And then what I did then was I, there was this sort of market started in Camden Town in London. And... I decided, hmm, well, I, the only thing I know about is music, so I'll set up a store there selling secondhand records. First, my own <laughs> album collection. Then I started selling nothing but sort of Trojan and reggae records, which I really loved. And so you could see my stall from miles away because of all this smoke pouring, of all these Jamaican guys hanging around <laughs> smoking uh, weed and like, I really got into that rhythmic stuff. And then I met these guys called Osabisa, who were like African players. It means crisscross rhythms that lead to happiness in African. Wow. And they were teaching me all these great rhythms, really strange, like... Uh, like you know, which is not exactly a straightforward beat when you play that to a drummer and they have to sort of work it out it's like rubbing your head with one hand and your tongue <laughs> with the other but it really came in useful in your rhythm it's all this stuff was just this big learning curve didn't know what it was for but when i you know met annie and we formed eurythmics i realized what all of it was for right was because we could do anything right we could suddenly people thought to synthesize a band from England with Sweet Dreams and all that stuff. And the next thing they knew, we were playing R&B stacks, like Would I Lie to You and Missionary Man and Sisters Are Doing It For Themselves. And Well, you were, you know, you were covering some stack stuff too. You covered Wrap It Up on the... On, we on, did, on the yeah, we did Wrap like It Up. And when we first played in L.A., it was packed, you know, people wondering, what is this? Who is this? And Sam from Sam and Dave leapt on the stage and did it with us. And um, we recently I, had him on this podcast, Dave. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. great. Still kicking. Uh, oh, my God. Amazing energy. And um, yeah, that show was absolutely packed with like a who's who of amazing 
because everybody had seen this video with Annie and I and the cow in it, you know. Mm-hmm. She had written this kind of surreal vignette. I said, we should make this as a little film. We didn't even know it was called a video. We'd just make this film, and Annie was all for it. And, and of course, the most difficult thing was getting the cow <laughs> in, in, a con, in a sort of boardroom, which the record company were like, what on earth is this, you know, <laughs> Annie's a lovely-looking girl. Why is this huge cow in it? But I was, by then, I was obsessed with French surrealist filmmakers. Sure. and you know, So nothing was about trying to be a hit, you see what I mean? It was all right. the intent of, like, how do we make something that really makes people think? Well, and it's, it's art. You're making art. You're creating art. And, exactly. And I love the fact that when you and Annie really t- became a true duo, you know, obviously you started in a punk rock band called The Catch together. That band mm-hmm. evolved into The Tourists together. But it wasn't until The Tourists split up, you and Annie become Eurythmics, that you're really doing it your, you know, your own way. And, and mm-hmm. I love the fact that on the first studio album, on In the Garden in 1981, that you and Annie co-produced with Connie Plank, who is a legendary name that a lot of people don't know and should know, you know, who basically invented and was the inspiration for a lot of techno and electronica that would come later with the work that he did with Noi and Kraftwerk and, and, and bands like that in Germany. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I must give a lot of credit to Connie because, you know, see, he saw how enthusiastic I was about learning about making records and producing and engineering that he just took me aside and would teach me things you know he went he, he'd made his own board you know he'd actually built it so he, he took me through every channel explaining what everything does and he explained all about where placing mics don't sort of eq everything because mm-hmm. you're taking everything away just move the mic further over here and you know hey let's put this microphone down the well and you know like all this stuff and realizing oh Anything is possible, right, right? you know, and he was the sweetest man and, and Krista, his wife, and I, you know, I don't, I don't think I'd be here today if uh, Connie hadn't taught me all this stuff. So well, when he, we went... He, he gave you the tools to then do it yourself when yeah. you and Annie went to Chalk Farm and started your own studio, right? Yeah, well, it was at was the eaves of a picture framing factory, so we had to sort of... Re- Caught her vocal in between, like <laughs> picture frame, and uh, it was you had to bend down all the time. But we had an eight track TIAC, we had a little bell noise reduction, we had a Roland Space Echo, and we had a Clark Technic spring reverb, and a small desk, and that was it, and about three microphones. And so, you know. Necessity is the mother of invention, so um, it was like, okay, so how are we going to make these sounds? So we're, in Sweet Dreams, we're actually playing milk bottles tuned right. with water, and on lots of the record, you know, I'm down at Camden Town Tube Station recording the wheels wow. of a train coming in, squeaking, and turning it into the slide guitar on This City Never Sleeps, wow. you know, to make the feeling of you're in a city, you know?
So for the production so for the production of this second album, which would you know famously be called "Sweet Dreams Are Made of This," you mm. and Annie are doing everything yourselves, right? Uh, yeah. Well, we had a great guy called Adam, and uh, he knew more about like how desk worked, you know, this particular desk, and helped say, well, we should try and get this and this and this because for only this small amount of money it would work, you know. And he also played, he was a bass player from a band called Selector who were around the town with the specials yeah, and madness, right. you know. Right, two-tone. And a really lovely guy. And um, But I was like ferocious learning sponge kind of, you know, just every single thing. So I would stay on till four or five in the morning. I would even record people from the street and bring them up and say, hey, right. do you want to make something? <laughs> I would record, you know, people reading poetry and put weird music to it. I would buy an instrument from Thailand. I mean, I just recorded so much stuff to try and understand sound, you know. Well, you were in control of your own art, you know, which I think well, is the reason that, you know, that authenticity and that honesty is the reason that it really connected with everybody. I love the story of how the song Sweet Dreams was created. Can you tell that? Yeah, well, it was a day when, you know, a lot of the time when I'm working all this stuff out, for Annie, she would be maybe writing in her journal or lying on her back waiting. And, you know, sometimes she was quite down. I mean, Annie and I had uh, broken up. She was going, you know, through all sorts of... Um, well, anxiety mixed with depression or whatever. So she was... But she would always come to the studio and so she was lying down and I'd got this drum machine Adam and I'd went and slept on a floor of a guy who was still building the prototype and it was like you'll see it in the video of Sweet Dreams it's like got a wooden sort of casing and it looks like a <laughs> okay it doesn't look like a drum machine at all anyway I uh was experimenting with it and making all these sounds then I tuned this tom-tom it was one of the first ones where you could, like, tune a thing down. So if you didn't like the sound, boom, you could go doom. So I got this really loud, low tom, and I was thinking about where to put it, but the thing just started, and it was nearly full volume, like the floor shook, and it went doom, like that. And I'd already put a bass drum on four on the floor, like doom, 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 doom. And Annie sort of like sort of leapt up, like got a shock. And I was sort of trying to sort of like control this beast. And uh, I had a little Roland SH-101. I went, and I was, it was just this epic sound. And Annie was like, oh, my God. And so there was not ours, but the guy who owned the picture frame factory had a Kurzweil that he practiced on. And we sort of would sneakily switch it on. And it came up with a sound. We didn't have to do anything. So that sound and the other sound, with me and Annie playing, and Annie playing, do, uh, do, 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 and this, that was it. And wow. all of a sudden, we, we knew something was happening. So it was an, an actually a pre-programmed sound inside the Kurzweil itself? Yeah, it just came on like that. <laughs> it's like magic. Well, the drum machine just came on like that. It just went boom. And so, well, the trick here is, well, 
to to recognize not to change it <laughs> that's okay right. it's like a beautiful mistake right. or whatever right. you want to call it and then it kept going round and round doing this thing so we were like oh what is it and then annie just went sweet dreams are made of this and i was like bloody hell was she writing that was, was she writing those lyrics on the spot no she just it came off the top of her head wow. just that like, like everything happened magically in a very short space of time. The only thing that changed, because it was just going round and round, there wasn't any other bit. And I thought there should be uh, um, like another bit, so I put in that, hold your head up, moving on, keep your head up, moving on. But, the, you know, the record company didn't understand it. It was the fourth single in Britain because I remember a meeting where they were going, look, there's no chorus or any structure. What is it? It's just going round and round. And I was thinking to myself, it seems to be all chorus to me. I, I, I don't really think we should change it. And, uh, of course, thank God we didn't. And it wasn't until a radio DJ here in the States in Cleveland picked yeah. up the import and started playing it and then called RCA Records in the U.S. and wanted to know who is this band Earthmix that... Yeah, the Earthmix, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, he was playing it from final album. He just liked that track. And, of course, he said all the phones would keep lighting up and people were like, oh, my God, you know, what is this? So he kept ringing up RCA in New York Listen, I'm telling you, you've got a band called The Earthmix, and it's like on fire. <laughs> and they were going, no, we don't. And never eventually never heard went, of them. Oh, yeah, exactly. yeah, hang on. They might mean the UK band, Eurythmics. And, yeah, I mean, it's all fate. You know, like the, we're talking about, you know, if you imagine being um, a student and a lover of music and thinking, how do I break through and do this. There's all these Instagram online things going, hey, you need more likes. This is how you do it. No, how you do it is you just have this burning passion to do something great and you have an understanding that sometimes it will manifest for you by having the burning passion. So it's once you get all of that, it's kind of like a law of intent if you want once you have all of that, things will come out of the thin air. Right. You know, because they're already there. They're in the space between your thoughts. So you just have to allow them to come through. And, like, when I've sat with many great artists, from George Harrison, Tom Petty, all, all these, Mick Jagger, you know, they all do the same thing. It's like we wait till there's a great feeling and then words come out of their right. mouth and some of it's gobbledygook and some of it's words and all of a sudden there's a feeling starts and you both know you in each other oh this is the feeling and you follow it like a tinkerbell you right. know until it turns into something right 
A hundred percent. You know, that song, Sweet Dreams Are Made of This, the song, as you said, was literally the fourth single released by the UK record company because they didn't hear it. But when it started taking off in Cleveland, um, then everybody got behind it. It goes to number one in America. Obviously, you're in the beginning days, the early days of MTV. And Annie had such a striking look that it practically screamed, look at me, you know, from the suburban TV sets of America with the orange hair and the androgynous look. And Annie becomes an icon. Yeah, absolutely. Just like that. Yeah. Just like that, uh, what people don't realize, the thought that went into that to decide we would wear sort of these suits and Annie got her hair cropped because she had long, you know, hair before that. And to get it cropped and then dyed this bright color orange and then the idea of the video... uh, written down i would say it should go like this and annie would make a storyboard i say it wow. starts off wow. and you know and the introducing of a surrealist element in it so those videos at the time a lot of it was the band was playing and it was shot in a studio right. and whatever now there was some of us not thinking it was uh, a video peter gabriel sledgehammer right um and, more like a movie yeah, we were thinking, oh, how do we make this sort of vignette film that gets across the feeling of what we're talking about? And that's when when I met Tom Petty, actually. It was a funny way how we met, but anyway. So Tom wasn't really thinking about videos like that. He was he liked making his music with his band, and that's what they were doing, and it was bloody great, I remember in England, hearing Refugee and going, God, who's this? And, um, but you see, I was this experimental sort of, almost like a guy from Alice in Wonderland or whatever, arrived, and I'd already made the chorus and sang on top of it, you know, don't come around here no more, with a sitar and everything in my hotel room in San Francisco on a four-track little portable thing. And that is... The basis of that record is still the four track rather than trying to recreate it. But then when the video uh, idea came up, amazing director, like the whole world and the story of it just, like I said before, just all fell into this, you know, we went down a wormhole because the intent of it suddenly became this, oh, we're going down a different street here and everything looks kind of unusual and it pulled tom out of a sort of funk he was in and a feeling he was in and he got pretty excited about it all even though it was weird because the album was going to be southern accents and it was all (laughs) what does a sitar have to do with southern accents right exactly now you see but it was like alice in wonderland you see because i arrived like the Mad Hatter or the, <laughs> the White Rabbit or whatever. And just, I didn't even think Tom was meant to be doing this. I was just making this track. And right. uh, Wasn't it originally intended for Stevie Nicks and it was Jimmy Iovine yeah, exactly. who played it uh, for Tom? It was meant for Stevie, but um, Jimmy Iovine, who was producing Stevie, you know, by a convoluted route, ended up that Jimmy rang Tom Petty and said, listen, 
got this song here. Now, remember, they had Stop Dragging My Heart Around. Right. Time Stevie right. did. But it ended up being on Stevie's album and a huge hit. So Tom was more like, hang on a minute. I'm, this I, want, is, I want one. Yeah. Uh, this is one of me. my albums. Right. And so we went to his garage, and of course, the band were completely confused. Here's a sitar, and I, you know, <laughs> you know, when you meet somebody from a foreign place in a foreign country and all their ideas are completely different because I'd been through the whole, you know, recording myself and the Sweet Dreams route and all that stuff. So they probably thought, I was, what's Tom doing? But then when we were making the video, they really got into it too. They were having fun and it was like, wow. They ended up making it their own. My Campbell solo is iconic. Oh, God. Well, what happened at the end, I realized, well, hang on, the band should come in in double time at the end and take off. And um, and Mike with his wah-wah, incredible solo. Hey, don't come around here no more. Hey, That came a huge part in their set live. Right. And Tom made a whole great sort of theatrical thing with the top hat. And and so it did sort of alter the course a bit. And, it really but, re-energized the band. And famously, for anyone who remembers the video, the first person you see in the video is Dave Stewart sitting on a yeah. mushroom with a sea tour. Yeah, smoking a hookup pipe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's a little bit how I arrived in Los Angeles, like that. <laughs> and so, yeah, well, you know, entering into other people's worlds is always tricky because their world is often set in stone. Right, right. And well, before, before we get into that, I, I'd love to just remind our listeners of all the iconic hits that you and Annie made as part of Eurythmics. Obviously, we spoke about Sweet Dreams. There's Here Comes the Rain Again with, you mentioned string arrangers before, the brilliant string arrangement by Michael came in on that. Mm. Sisters are doing it for themselves. We have to talk about that because it's such an iconic song. So originally, was that a poem? That Annie had written? Yeah, what happened was we'd finished the record and we had on it, you know, big, you know, songs like Would I Lie To You and stuff like that. But she came in she said, and we were in the tiny little offshoot room to a mixing room, you know, where people go. They call it the lounge, but it's usually the size of a postage stamp, right. you know. And uh, I was in there and Annie came in and said, oh, I've just written this poem. And she showed me it. And it was, sisters are doing it for themselves, you know. Now, there was a time when they used to say, I was reading it, I said, oh, this is great. But it didn't need to be a poem, it sounds like a song. And I started playing this. And then I, I said, if you sing it in between that, so. Now, there was a time, you know, almost like storytelling, you know, not being on the one, but singing behind it. 
it starts to sound like a sort of R&B, soul, gospel sure. kind of song. Sure. And then, so we started to just mess around with that. And then Annie was going, oh, yeah. Like, she got into it. And before we knew it, we had all the... About doing it for themselves. And then it was right, right, it is a song. And then it was like, quick, get Ben Mont back and Mike uh, Campbell, you know. On so Tom the heartbreakers Pate. of the band on that? Yeah, so Mike, I said Mike should play that wild, wild type solo thing. And very quickly we had this amazing track. And Don Smith, who was a great yeah, for the heartbreakers. And, and then people were saying, go. Oh, well, saying sisters should be a duet, really. And then it was going through, oh, I could sing like this. And of course, this was obviously scary for Annie. You're throwing out names. Like, oh, maybe it should be Tina Turner, Aretha Franklin. Now, these are people that we listened to, you know, when we were sure. younger. And Annie ended up in Aberdeen uh, listening to... Motown, yeah. Soul and Motown. Yeah. But we ended up flying to Detroit and doing it with Aretha. And I'm sure Aretha had no idea who we were. Like, How did the song eventually make it to Aretha, and who convinced her to do it? Annie and I have been talking about that. We can't quite remember if it was Clive Davis. Now, you see, we weren't with Clive at all at that time. So not I yet. Don't know you would he, be later, but not yet. We would be later, but she was. And so maybe somebody had talked to him. But anyway, all I know is we went all the way to Detroit, to record Aretha, got off the plane, got the studio, and Don remembered he'd left the multi-track on the plane. <laughs> so fortunately, Aretha was fashionably late. But she'd been cooking uh, she'd been cooking chicken wings all night and day to bring us as a gift. That's awesome. But Annie was a vegan at the time, <laughs> so I didn't like to say. But anyway, uh, one of the most amazing moments musical moments of my life actually wow was me and aretha just on our own crushed in a tiny room and it was an upright piano right i don't know why she did it but for some reason she sang and played the way we were the gladys the night piano. the gladys night arrangement yeah right. just 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 me and her and i'm sort of standing leaning on the piano and she's saying i remember and you know and tearful and singing it and she was crying. She was crying and singing and playing that. And there's only me and her in a room the size of a cupboard. Um, this is before we even started. This was on arrival. <laughs> so I was wow, like, gee whiz. oh, my oh my God. Like, so I didn't tell Annie um, how blown away I was because Annie was already really nervous, like having to sing with Aretha Franklin around the same mic and the whole thing. But... When it all kicked off and Aretha heard the song and when Annie opened her mouth, Aretha was very respectful and realized, oh, this is like the real thing. Right. Awesome. And so suddenly she took a jacket off and like was right. uh, That's awesome. okay, you know, race to the end kind of thing. <laughs>
Right. And, you know, obviously the song, the, the record of Sisters Are Doing It For Themselves becomes such a big hit. And I love how you mentioned before that Don't Come Around, Hear No More re-energized Tom and the band The Heartbreakers. But Sisters Are Doing It For Themselves energized, re-energized Aretha because later, using a similar creative template, that's where Freeway of Love and Who's Zooming. Freeway of Love and Yeah, yeah, yeah sure, sure. I'd say it's, it's almost you can sing the same thing on top of the track, you know? Well, it's a testament to you. I mean, some of the other hits from Eurythmics, Right By Your Side, Love Is A Stranger, Would I Lie To You, There Must Be An Angel with Stevie Wonder, another Motown icon yeah, num- on harmonica. number one in Britain. Uh, yeah. Um, funny enough, There Must Be An Angel in America. I didn't quite get it because a very strange sort of quirky English song, but then we put Stevie Wonder on harmonica and it was number one in Britain. Right. Were you in the room with Stevie, or did he... Uh, do oh, yeah, room? yeah. Became great friends with him actually, and, wow. and then secretly he flew into Britain. We didn't know to induct Annie and I into oh, the so UK nice. Hall of Fame. Wow, and, that's awesome! And then played our set. And Annie was talking about it the other day. Said she was nervous, so nervous because Stevie came on stage to play his harmonica solo. This is at like what would be your Grammys, you know, and. Um, and then he went to the piano and decided to play on the rest of the set we were playing. Oh, but we, we never rehearsed any the songs with him. Didn't matter, obviously, right. because he went into Here Comes the Rain again. He's playing all this incredible stuff. Unbelievable. Yeah, it was funny. I went for him, me and my young son and my wife and Stevie, and he had a friend with him. And we went to a tiny little Japanese restaurant in uh, Covent Garden. And Stevie just started telling all these amazing stories when he, when he was a kid to my seven-year-old oh, son. Oh, wow. Well, and that, he ordered... Well, that's something that, that your son will remember for the rest of his life. Yeah, but the funny thing was we ordered sake to drink, and I said, Stevie, what would you like? And he said, I'd like a big glass of vodka and pear juice. And I was like, I looked at the one friends, you know, that ran the Japanese restaurant, because I was, and they were like, panicking pear juice because they didn't carry pear juice so they went running out to a sort of a, a food market <laughs> got pear juice and came back and um yeah but i've had so many i must say so blessed to have worked with uh incredible musicians and artists and wordsmiths and i've never been put myself out to tender or something like to a record label. Hey, I'm a record producer. Who have you got to produce? Right, they I've just they come, once, to, they come to you. I, yeah, I've never once tried to be a record producer that make a record with a band or whatever. It just this um, this sort of falling down the rabbit hole and ending up in various places and 
yeah, stuff just happens. Yeah, well, that's a great segue to some of the other hits that you've had. Obviously, the final massive Grammy Award-winning hit for Eurythmics in 1986 was Missionary Man. But once Eurythmics broke up in 1990, you just went on a roll. You scored a movie, a Dutch movie called Lily Was Here, found a young saxophone player named Candy Dulfer, had a number, you know, just about a top 10 smash in America with, you know, what's... An instrumental. Yeah, (laughs) what's almost become like a smooth jazz classic now. I know. It It was a hit everywhere around the world, but it was literally all I said to Candy, it was the end of a movie, and I just said, hey, for a theme song at the end, you just follow what I'm playing, and I went... Oh, someone at 12 string, but it doesn't really work. Yeah, I can't really play it on a 12 string, but anyway, it goes de down, de down, de down, de down, de down, and then it went. And she followed on the sax all of these uh, melodies, and I said, now just like go for a solo in the middle, and then we'll go back to the melody. So the, it was one take, four minutes long. And I said, okay, and it, I persuaded the label to put it out. They didn't want to put it out, the British label. They couldn't understand how he released an instrumental. It's so weird. So I got the Dutch label to put it out. And, yeah, it just spread all around Germany, France, Europe, eventually America, and entered the charts everywhere. Best friends today, uh, Candy Dolph and I, we've wow. played so many times together. Wow. Then Prince, uh, often Prince, I'd find like a young player and I'd notice, you know, like a year later, he'd have that player, <laughs> you know, like Andy Dolfer <laughs> or like, <laughs> you know, Judith Hill. Uh, making right, his, right, that's true. Visit with Judith Hill, then yep. oh, suddenly Prince got Judith Hill. Wow. Or, Bass players, like amazing. And anyway, well, I met right. I, I met Prince a few times, and we did have a very similar obsessive uh, finding other musicians. Right. You know what I mean? Amazing. You know, the thing about Lily was here; it doesn't sound anything like what you did in Eurythmics, and it just shows yeah. that you know you're so capable of becoming, you know, kind of like a musical chameleon. We talked about Mm -hmm. Don't Come Around Here No More with the sitar. Um, A massive, massive UK hit in the mid-'80s was Fergal Sharkey's A Good Heart that Mm -hmm. you produced. And that was written by a a teenage Maria McKee later Mm -hmm. from... What's funny about that is, you know, uh, she, uh, in... I used to live in the house with Jimmy Iovine on Mulholland. Right. He was working with Lone Justice. Right. Maria McKee was playing this song slowly on the piano, you know, good, hard, it's hard to find. I was listening. I said, oh, I love that song. She said, oh, it's not going to be on the album. I said, well, let me record it on my cassette player. And I did. And then an Irish artist called Fogel Sharkey 
from the undertones, I made it in a completely different way. And I think I sent her a message, you know, was number one or something. Years later, 20 odd years later, she said, hey, thanks for that. It's still, it's the gift that never stops giving, if you know what I mean. so many six degrees of separation stories you know with you and and your life because maria wrote a good heart about her relationship with ben montage from the heartbreakers so oh, yeah. you know there's there's tom petty again there's jimmy iovine again it's like all oh yeah then i then i said to ben mont he wrote a song called you little thief and he was playing it to me on the keyboard very sort of dark song and i again made that uh, as a hit as well. <laughs> I said, oh, Ben, I like that. Let record that on my cassette. And who was and that I, for? Uh, on the same record, oh, Fergal. Wow. That's so funny. It was a follow-up single, and that was a hit as well. That's so funny. Some other hits that you've been involved with for other people, um, you produced Daryl Hall from Hall & Oates' solo album um, in 1986, mm -hmm. Three Hearts and the Happy Ending Machine with Dreamtime, which was a top five hit here. You wrote, again, here's Jimmy Iovine writing, asking you to write a song for Alison Moyet, um, which you did, Is This Love, was a top three in the UK in 1986. But it mm -hmm. wasn't, if you look at the credits, it doesn't say Dave Stewart on it. Well, <laughs> yes. This is a, what happens is, you see, I started to sort of get word uh, that my name was connected to all these different singles or hits or whatever. And also, I think Annie, from the beginning, when I wrote with Tom and that, was like, hey, we're a duo, you know. And so I started changing my name to Jean Guillaume, Boo Boo Watkins, Raymond Doom, pseudonyms, and I'd have singles out all over the place with different names to it. You know, I had a, one in England was number one for eight weeks called Stay. The Shakespeare's sister, sure. Yeah, yeah Jean Guillaume. And I think it was number one in America as well. Um, where where but, did the name Jean Guillaume come from as a pseudonym? Well, my friend in France, an engineer, is called Emmanuel Guillaume. So I just nicked his second name. Um, but the trouble was, you know, years later when my new management company, I said, oh, by the way, I have these pseudonyms. And they were like, what? And I, I gave them them. And they were having to go all over the place finding these names the and find the BMI and right. like what label was it on and all this stuff, which is still a whole <laughs> confusing. That, that's another thing. gift that keeps giving, right? Yeah. Um, you, you talked about Stay, Shakespeare's sister. Um, that song was co-written with the two girls in Shakespeare's sister, Marcella Detroit, also known as Marcy Levy, um, and mm. Siobhan Fahey, who you were married to at the time. Exactly, yeah. 
So, yeah, I wrote quite a few songs with them under the name of Jean Guillaume. There you go. Um, One song that you wrote later, you know, maybe a full decade later under your real name that a lot of people may not know is a massive hit for No Doubt with Gwen Stefani called Underneath It All. Going back to your Camden stall market days, it's a reggae song. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, by then, you see, I'd got a house up in the far hills in Jamaica um, underneath Nine Mile where Bob Marley was born, middle of nowhere with my friend Brian Jobson and it had, uh, he's a bass player in Jamaica, had little waterfalls in the back garden in the countryside, in the jungle basically. And I'd dragged equipment there and recorded there a few times and I was always listening to dub music and reggae music. So. I even met Lady Saw when she was just beginning, who did the rap. I sure. met her when she on underneath it all. Sure. First started, yeah. So, um, yeah, I sort of had this track I'd made, uh, a backing track for them, and then Gwen and I went in the kitchen, and literally 15, 20 minutes later, we went back around the other side where my studio was, and Gwen was like, we've got it, and put down the vocal and uh, it turned into the yeah, big number one. And the production on the record of Underneath It All was actually Sly and Robbie, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. They went to Jamaica then and worked with Sly and Robbie, and um, who I also had known for ages. And yeah, it, it's a great sounding record. That a hundred percent. Which leads us to your friendship with Mick Jagger. You know who is a lifelong friend of yours, bandmate. You've produced him, you've written with him. And you mentioned earlier when you were a kid listening to the Stones on the radio, Mm. and now Mick's become a lifelong friend. I've Mm. been waiting for this moment to tell you a story that I Mm -hmm. don't think you know. And correct me if I'm wrong, but Mm -hmm. there is a fairly obscure song that you and Mick wrote, Mm -hmm. which later would end up on the soundtrack for Alfie. But before it did, Mm -hmm. it somehow got to Carlos Santana in the 90s. And Carlos Santana demoed it up for his new label, Arista Records, where there was a young A&R guy going through those demos, and that was me. Right? Oh, really? And I heard this I've never heard his one. Okay, well, I'm going to tell you how you and Mick's song ended up inspiring one of the biggest selling albums of all time. So <laughs> we listened to this song, Blind Leading the Blind, off of Carlos's demos. And at the yeah. time, it was just Carlos noodling over a track and Mick singing the hook, right? So yeah. I had an idea that I could get a young artist to write the verses on it. And we could have right. this, you know, kind of generational moment. Mm. There was a big band in America at the time called Blues Traveler. And I sent it to John Popper of Blues Traveler. And he was so right. excited to write verses to it. Right. He came in. He met with me and Clive. He started singing some verses. Nothing ever worked. And it didn't work out. But the idea 
we ran with. And we got Rob Thomas and Smooth, and we got Wyclef and Maria Maria, and none of that yeah. would have happened without Blind Leading the Blind. So, ah, so thank you. That's interesting, because <laughs> I, think, I think what happened is um, interesting is that then he would play the kind of great melody verses and the artist would sing kind of choruses which but you know the demo you're talking about i think it's not carlos playing the guitar it sounds like him but it's me playing it oh there you, go. The there you go and i because I, I vaguely remember getting a message from him via somebody where he said well it sounded like he wouldn't play it any different right. you know what i mean right that's so funny but now if you could send me that demo i will find it I'll tell you because i've got the one that i sent off with mixing the chorus and replaying the guitar right it, it goes do 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 yeah uh yeah it could small, be the same thing. small world though right oh god yeah <laughs> i i know um it's funny but then we changed the song completely and wrote verses for it, for Alfie. Right. And it, and the acoustic version of that on the album is one of my favorite tracks. It's just live take, acoustic guitar, drum, piano, with mixed singing. And it's a, it, it exists in a different form. Right. An another small world, six degrees of separation story is I recently did a label deal here at Atlantic with Cara Guardi. Yeah. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. And Kara was your bandmate in Platinum Weird in 2004. And, yeah. you know, because you guys had been writing songs for the Pussycat Dolls for Jimmy, but they ended up sounding more like something Fleetwood Mac would do. And so Jimmy came up with this crazy, <laughs> exactly. crazy backstory. We didn't really know how to write songs for the Pussycat Dolls. <laughs> so Kara was really worried about it because she was a songwriter and she was going, but we're meant to be doing this. And I said, yeah, no, but like... I I don't. I think we should just keep doing what we're doing, which was all sounding like yeah, like Fleetwood Mac. So Jimmy came around my house, sat down there, and he listened to what we were doing. And Cara was really nervous. Then Jimmy said, "Well, you should just keep doing like that. It sounds like Fleetwood Mac." <laughs> and so we did. The other thing was when that record came out, there was some mistake, and the record company released our fake record made in a literally in a rehearsal room because we made a fake group from the past you know we made a vh1 special about it um and for some reason they put that out by mistake instead of our real album <laughs> but like i don't blame them because you see um i had dan Aykroyd reading the whole story of the original platinum weird oh, band so from like 1972 wow. And um, so the, I can see why they would have got confused because a lot of people thought, oh, this was a famous band. And I had in the film, I had Elton and Mick and everybody talking about Platinum Weird. Oh, yeah, I remember them, you know. They were a great influence on us, yes. Yeah. 
you know, uh, apart from that, that our listeners may not know, you've made movies. You talked about Deep Blues earlier. You've created TV shows, mm-hmm. Malibu Country with Reba in 2012, Mr. Pickles and Mama Named Me Sheriff for Adult Swim, where you voice the characters as well, uh, Songland, a songwriter competition show with Ryan Tedder, Shane McAnally, and Esther Dean in 2019. You've written Broadway shows, Ghost with Glenn Ballard. You're working on the Time Traveler's Wife musical with Joss Stone, another former bandmate of yours, and Super yeah. Heavy, your super group with Mick Jagger and A.R. Rahman and, yeah. and Damian Marley. You've owned your own record label, Anxious Records. You discovered mm-hmm. London Beat, who would later go on to have, you know, number one U.S. Hot 100 one, song. Yeah. yeah, with I've Been Thinking About You. You're probably one of the most prolific guests we've ever had on this program, Dave. <laughs> yeah, you make me tired. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I've got a little record label now called Bay Street Records, which Joss Stone is on, and producing an artist now, Faye Fantero, and we have other artists. And on you it. release your own music on that label as well, right? Yeah, a big box set that I brought out a few months ago, which is going to be a, actually a feature film and a musical, and it's about going back to the beginning of our story. It's about me discovering music when I was a teenager in Sunderland. Wow. And that's Ebony and McQueen, right? Ebony McQueen, yeah. So that, that album uh, was released two months ago. It's called Ebony McQueen, 26 songs. It's a concept album about a teenage boy in Sunderland visited by a living, breathing voodoo blues queen. Yeah, so, which was a metaphor so. for the record from Memphis, you know what I mean? Yes. And I put that, yes. But then she actually appears in real life much to the confusion of the kid playing me, you know, appears in my bedroom. And um, yeah, the music, the music film is, I suppose it has a parallel to Billy Elliot, but that was about dancing. Yeah, sure. But um, yeah, I'm very excited about that. That's what we're... That's exciting. And, and we also haven't mentioned your great 2016 memoir, Sweet Dreams oh, yeah. are, are Made of This, A Life in Music, which Dave wrote, a foreword by your friend Mick Jagger, and um, definitely worth reading to learn more about Dave's life. The infamous clam chowder incident is in there in all its glory. <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll um, save my wife said, oh, why did you put that in there? Said, well, it was funny. It wasn't funny at the time, but in retrospect. Well, this has been an absolute pleasure, Dave. Thank you for spending time with us, and thank you for all the great music. Thank you so much. Don't mess with a missionary man. Don't mess with a missionary man. Don't mess with a missionary man. Thanks a lot to our guest, the incredibly prolific Dave Stewart, for joining us this week. You can keep up with Dave at his highly interactive website, davestewartent.com. Dave's also active on social media, so search him out there to stay in touch with his creative pursuits. He's always got a lot going on. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget to like and subscribe, and we'll see you next time for another episode of Rock and Roll High School. Rock and Roll High School is a presentation of Pure Tone Music in association with Warner Music. Produced by Pete Ganbard, with assistance from Craig Rosen, Ron Robinson, Joe Pomerico, Kelly Sayer, Chris Costello, 
Willie Fastenow, Catherine Hoppy, Kayla Flores, and Rich Mahan. Please visit our website at rockschoolpodcast.com for more info on past and future shows. All rights reserved. Rock, 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 rock on high school.